We're continuing in our series in uh, Miracles and Parables of Jesus Christ. If you'll go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 16, we'll be continuing with um, another striking parable. And go ahead and turn your Bibles to Luke 16, verses 19 to 31. As you're turning there, and we're preparing our hearts to, to open up and receive from God's Word, imagine for a moment... I want you to create a setting for you to get your mind into where we're going to be heading. So imagine for a moment that you're going to the Biltmore home in Asheville, North Carolina. And I know, how many people have actually been to the Biltmore? So you don't have to imagine very much like, oh my goodness, at least two-thirds of the people here have been to the Biltmore. So it doesn't take that much imagination, but... It is an impressive home, to say the least. George Vanderbilt, he built it as a private residence, and, it's the, and he built it when he was a bachelor. And it's the, I believe, at least the United States' largest private residence, over 179,000 square feet. It kind of dwarfs most of our homes. And um, he had a, over 125 to 130,000 acres To put that in context, that's 195 square miles of land. So pretty much as far as the eye could see, he owned all around the Biltmore. And today, all of his land actually comprises what is all of the Pisgah National Forest. I I, I can't even fathom that because you can hike for hours in the Pisgah, not reach the other side. And he owned all the way from Asheville where the Biltmore is to the other side of the Pisgah. His house was impressive. It had 250 rooms. He built brickworks and a railroad to support it. He built actually a town center in Asheville, the little church that's in town before it was sold off after his death. And he he really flaunted his wealth. I mean, that's really an understatement. (laughs) If you've been in there, you just you're struck by how massive it is and just the opulence of really everything that he did. Now, he had good taste, but he, he, he flaunted his wealth in every way. He, you know, in a day when most of the people working for him might have had two changes to maybe three changes of clothes, um, he had a whole staff and, and a specific steward whose main job it was just to change his clothes for him. And so he would change his clothes every time he had a different activity. And sometimes he changed his clothes six, seven times a day. And then he wouldn't repeat those same outfits during the week. Um, just a major contrast between the person working for him and, and himself. His dining room was bigger or as big as most homes today, about 3,000 square feet of floor space, that is, with 70-foot high ceilings. So really, if you take the 3,000 square feet of floor space and you think you can get at least two more floors in there, right? Um, it, it could have been the equivalent of 9,000 square foot place, and it was just his dining room. On any given day, they feasted so sumptuously that, that one of their big feasts when they had a bunch of guests over and they had over 70 to 80 people sitting at one table, um, it was more than the average income annually of any of his workers, which is the cost of one meal. His home hosted three presidents. Guests included the, mo- uh, included the most influential people in the world at the time. And it'd be easy to think that such great riches automatically meant that George Vanderbilt must have been loved by God, must have been blessed by God truly. It's easy to conclude that. You think, how could somebody get so wealthy unless they're just blessed by God? And, but in the end, 
George died at 51 from a ruptured appendix. You know, the first reaction I remember when I, when I saw his home was one of just, I was dumbfounded at his wealth. I can't even, I don't even have context for imagining that much wealth. The second reaction I had was not, not to be dumbfounded, but to kind of be a little irked and think, what a waste. What a waste of such extreme riches to be lavished on a bachelor when he built it. You know, today nobody's built a home like George Vanderbilt since then, but um, the population of the rich is equally as rich as George Vanderbilt, and about 1-2% to of the U.S. population would have equivalent net worth as he had. And there are many who are in the upper tier of wealth in our country. At the same time, in comparison to much of the world, if you think about it, take apart that 1-2% to of the wealthiest in our nation— the middle class of America is among the wealthiest in the world, among the couple top percentage points in the world in comparison. You know, in extreme contrast, we heard a couple weeks ago about members from our church that went down to be a part of a mission trip to the Dominican Republic. Now, the Dominican Republic has some really nice places and beautiful tourist spots and has some very wealthy people, but they have a lot of poverty as well. And, and what affected some of our team members when they came back was they didn't, they've never really experienced that level, that degree of extreme poverty where there's slums and people build their homes out of materials that we would discard and put in the trash where you can see through the walls of the homes. And so they encountered this extreme poverty. And, you know, what are we to do with the disparity even in our own country? They have the 1% to 2% of our country and then 14.8%, almost 15% of our country lives below the poverty level. That's just in our own country. What do you do with such disparities? How do you respond to such huge differences? You know, maybe one reaction that some Christians can have is, you know, well, I think the answer is all about social justice or changing our social structure. And so some people would advocate for maybe the solution is some form of socialism. But is the answer really to take from the rich and give to the poor? Does that solve things? I want to be intentionally provocative and stirring us up to think about some of these things. Is some kind of forced social communal response the right response? You know, there can be some merit in the government helping the poor. But should we mandate? Should we force those who have more to give to those who don't. You know, I think, well, if, you, if you're a historian and you study the last couple hundred years, at least since the great Marxist revolution, there's been over a century worth of, of some countries where it is as pure communist or Marxist as you can get, and it seems clear the answer does not lie there. What about the other extreme, the other reaction that people can have to seeing poverty and wealth like this and some would advocate for remove all barriers to the free market economy and let's just have pure capitalism as a solution. But is that really a solution either? Should the government incentivize the rich so that things trickle down to the poor? There could be merit to that approach too, right? But we've seen that that's not really the answer. That's not really the solution, the disparity between the rich and the poor. When we had a period in our country when it was a little more free like that, um, the gulf actually increased, not my opinion that's statistics how about a third reaction one might have so you go to the extreme well what about you know here the answer is this and the answer is socialism the answer is capitalism or what about the third reaction that a lot of people have and they just check out and they don't answer that question at all they don't wrestle with the issue of all what do we do with the poor 
They think, well, maybe the answer is just to ignore it, or maybe the problem really is the poor themselves because they've got themselves into the place that they're at. It's their fault. Either you know, they're criminals or they're dumb or they're lazy. Those can be some extremes. This is the third kind of reaction that people can have. You know, for whatever reason, some people don't do anything and aren't prepared to help the poor in any way. Maybe they, in the back of their minds, are thinking, well, the poor are just inferior anyway. You know, sometimes people can think the poor are poor because they chose to be that way because they're inferior. And you can apply that to people from all different ethnic backgrounds. But we have to believe as Christians that that's not inherently true because God created all people as equal image bearers in his sight. That all of us inherently are equally capable of sin and failure. All of us equally are in need of God's grace. So is the right response that everybody can really pull themselves up their own bootstraps? Well, if you look at the rest of the world, you know that's not the answer because there are many places in the world where people are, people are working desperately and hard and cannot overcome their economic poverty, where poverty can be equated with oppression. So this parable that we're going to read in a moment, it's going to confront us. You see, Jesus spoke to these issues. He spoke to what do we do? How do we deal with extreme wealth and extreme poverty? How do we respond? How should we respond? How do we react? How do we, how do we relate? You know, the people 15, 20 years ago, you say, what, what would Jesus do? Well, we see that in this parable, what his response is to these extremes. And he doesn't do what a lot of people think. Is that he doesn't say being wealthy is evil or being poor is good or being poor is evil and wealthy is good as a lot of us can tend to do, even if we don't really admit it, in the back of our heads, we can look at somebody who's impoverished and think, yeah, that's their fault. As if being wealthy is somehow something that is not given to us by God. Unlike what the Apostle Paul says, what do you have that you didn't receive? So how would Jesus have reacted to such economic disparities in his day? You see, the fact is they, they existed in his day side by side. Jesus did address it, but his response, let me just help you out. His response didn't fit any of the three reactions I listed at the beginning. His response had nothing to do with our common three reactions that we have as people. It had nothing to do with that, but it had everything to do with our hearts. Let's read Luke 16, verses 19 to 31. This is God's holy, inspired word. Let's read it together. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. What what extreme, just pause for a moment, what extreme difference we see here. Complete inequality between extremely lavish rich man and an extremely impoverished man. It goes on in verse 22, Jesus continues. He says, the poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried 
and in Hades, or hell, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who have passed from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, Then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers, that he may warn them, lest they also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, No, Father Abraham. But if somebody goes to them from the dead, then they will repent. He said to them, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word that cuts to the division of soul and spirit, joint and marrow. Thank you for your word which pierces our hearts for our good that reveals the intentions and motives of our hearts and lays us bare before you, before whom we must give an account. Thank you, Lord, that there is hope in your word. Father, I pray for this word this morning, that you would bring conviction where necessary. But Lord, I pray that we would not experience condemnation, but we would respond where necessary, repent. And Father, I pray we respond in faith because you have been raised from the dead. You have been punished in our place for all that we deserved. So God, we, we ask you to be with us. I ask that you would anoint my words as I speak. May they be your words, Lord. Give us all grace to hear from you. We are all equally in need of you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. What we see in this parable, it's a dramatic reversal, isn't it? It's a dramatic reversal. Jesus, he was all about that. He would tell a parable, he would set you up to be comfortable in yourself and think you know the outcome, think you know the solution, and then he would, he would hit you. Verbally, of course, if you were paying attention. And this is a dramatic reversal of fortunes. But it doesn't teach that being rich is bad or poor is good, you know, because you think about it. Who was the other rich man in this parable that... And most people don't really think about it. It's Abraham. Abraham was extremely rich. Probably at least as rich as this guy. If you think about how many flocks he had and all the great riches he had. But yet, so it's, it can't be about riches are good or bad. Or being poor is good or bad. There's something else going on. Think about it too. In the Bible, there's, there's all kinds of rich people. Solomon, he was lauded. Um, Esther, Queen Esther, quite rich. Saved the whole nation of Israel. You know, same time being poor 
sometimes we see is, is, a, is because of oppression and because the God's people did not care for the poor. And so what we see in this parable, this, this big idea that we kind of see in this parable here is that, is that what we do with what we have, it reveals something. What we do with what we have, it reveals our ultimate destiny. What we do with what we have here on earth, now, that's, that's riches and goods and what God's given to us in his word. That's what we have. What we do with what we have, it reveals, it reveals where our ultimate destiny is. It shows us a contrast to two kinds of people between the rich, the poor, the, this man who's destitute, and yet we don't see him complain. We don't see him make his own defense. He's silent, actually. Lazarus doesn't speak a word in this parable. In contrast, to this man who's extremely rich and is stingy, and he doesn't ever change because he keeps defending himself to the very bitter end, the very end. He goes, no, Father Abraham, you're wrong. That's not the picture of a repentant man. What the parable is pointing to is that what we do with what we've been given, it reveals something. Reveals the true character of our heart. It reveals where our ultimate destiny lies. That's challenging to hear in this culture that's for so many years been driven by the American dream. But what we see in in verses 19 to 22 at the very outset is is that what we have, it doesn't determine God's blessing. What we have here on earth, it doesn't determine God's blessing. Or the lack of things doesn't mean that somehow God is is less pleased with us. And that's what we see. And that's what we're meant to see in this passage. And that would have been something that the Pharisees would have been shocked by. It's something many of us can struggle with today. Unfortunately, there's a lot of bad teaching out there that says that if you you really believe enough, if if you really have enough faith, then you can be healthy and wealthy and wise. And it depends upon you. Ultimately, it's a theology of works by faith and so we can get this idea from many corners that you can get what you need if you only believe but this parable actually says no that's that's really not true there's a contrast here and the implication is Lazarus did believe the rich man did not truly believe and yet Lazarus he he goes through all life with sores and he dies. He gets looked by dogs. What an awful life. And he dies. But really, not only is that, that idea that we can attain everything that we want or need through our own faith, it, it, it leads to a false gospel that leads to hopelessness and despair for all those who aren't perfectly healthy and wealthy and wise. Lazarus and the rich man, they teach us that that what we have, it doesn't determine with what, that, whether God's pleased with us or not. Think about the man that Luke is depicting here. Jesus is setting him up as an extremely wealthy man. He's a very wealthy man. Because this, this language here would have shown he's abounding in material possessions. He has more than he needs. And he, says, he, he uses riches to lavish fine things on himself. He is a selfish man. The, the New American Standard interprets This verse by saying that he habitually dressed in purple and fine linen, joyously living in the splendor of every day. He he was richly appointed in all of his his clothes. He habitually dressed in purple and fine linen. You gotta know something about purple is that that purple dye, it came from a, a little 
creature, and it was extremely expensive. It was the most expensive dye in that day. It would have been clothes that were only worn by royalty. Only kings would have worn purple garments. And then it says, he's so rich, by the way, that this fine linen, that, that word there is referring to, he's so rich, he even wears fine linen in his underwear. And that, that's what it's saying. He's so wealthy, he even wears fine clothes where you can't see him. He wears external fine clothes, and he wears this fine Egyptian basum. It's this, this linen that would have been very, very expensive, imported linen, and he would have worn that for his undergarments. And that's how this guy is so wealthy, and he lived joyously in, in splendor or luxury, as the NIV put it. He made merry and feasted sumptuously every day. He's trying to get across is that he, he was lavishing riches on himself. He was living for himself. He was living for his own pleasures. He was living for all that he could taste. There's some irony in that we'll get to later. You know, in Jesus' day, the religious leaders would have said that great riches were a sign of God's pleasure. But while the Pharisees would have seen the rich as those who are obviously blessed by God because of the riches, Luke, the, the one who by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit's writing this, he doesn't see it that way. See, Luke actually talks about riches more than any other gospel writer. He mentions riches at least double of what the other ones do. And how he refers to the rich is often not charitable. This parable, in fact, it's found in a chapter in a context that's primarily all about how we relate to possessions in three kind of different ways. And you see, you know, there's, there's this relating the prodigal son to the possessions of his father. And then the second kind of parable that follows after that is this relationship to possessions by this dishonest employee or manager. And then this third kind of story of relating to possessions is, is what we do with our possessions here, our own possessions. So the, the possessions of the father, possessions of and our employer or our boss and our own possessions. Those are Jesus and Luke Luke is laying out a theology of how do we relate to possessions here. And actually at the beginning of the chapter, Jesus is hammering the Pharisees. And the Pharisees' reaction, it's telling. He, he closes out the parable that he opens up chapter 16 with right before this, just a few verses. And in Luke 16, 11, he says, If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, he's talking about the, the wealth that we receive from this earth. Who will entrust you the true riches? In that context, true riches is eternal life. He's setting you up for this parable. He says, if you've not been faithful in unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you the true riches? And if you've not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You can't serve God and money. It's not saying money's evil. But you can't have money as your God and also God as your God. The two are incompatible. God alone will be God. The next verse tells us the response of the Pharisees. Then he's, Jesus is laying out some parables. He's, he's telling the Pharisees this really hard word. He says, you can't serve God and money. How do the Pharisees respond? Well, we'll look down your Bibles in, in verse 14 of Luke 16. Just, just go up a few verses from where we're at. It says, the Pharisees who were lovers of money heard all these things and they did What? They ridiculed him. And he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men. That's the context that we need to prick our own hearts with. Are we those who justify ourselves before men? 
He says, but God knows your hearts. For what's exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. Then four verses later, Jesus tells the Pharisees this parable. You know, when I was younger, when I first read this parable, and really until just recently, really, I've always read this parable. This parable is all about um, going to hell and good works, and we only have one chance, we need to warn people. And, And those are true applications. But this parable is really all about, are we living as stewards in this life? And does our life actually reflect what we say we believe? Jesus paints this picture here in this broader context of stewardship and money of an extravagantly self-indulgent rich man. And then he has this contrast with this very, very poor man. It says, look down your Bible. It says, and at his gate, by the way, that's indicative that he had a very large estate. He had a gate. At his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus covered with sores. He wasn't just poor. He was so bad off that he had to be carried there and laid at the guy's gate. He couldn't even make it there himself. He couldn't even get up to go beg. He was so destitute, so helpless, so smitten and afflicted that he had to be carried and laid at the rich man's gate because back then there wasn't any welfare. There wasn't any social system or program to take care of him. But the way that God designed and actually prepared was for people to care for one another. And so they typically would lay poor people at the gates of those who are rich so that the rich would at least see them and then they could give alms, which was a practice that was commanded in the Old Testament. Or the other place they would be laid was outside the temple so that everyone as they came into the temple would see those who were in need and give alms on their way to worship God. They would worship God by giving to those in need. Whatever reason, Lazarus is destitute and afflicted and he not only lacked the means to support himself, he was a picture here of utter helplessness. We're meant to see that. He couldn't make it to the gate. On top of that, he's destitute, physically unable to bring himself to the gate. It says he's covered with sores. You know, if you're covered with sores in that day, it would have been seen as the punishment of God. So he's destitute. He's physically incapacitated. He's too weak to get himself there. He is impoverished that he has to beg just to survive. And on top of all that, he's covered with sores, laying there in agony. Talk about an extreme, right? You would think it would be obvious that the rich man should have given to this guy, right? It would have been obvious this guy was in need. He was at his gate. Every time the rich man left his house to go to the synagogue, he would have seen this rich man. On the way to worship God, he would have seen a man who is the utter picture of need right at his door. Look at this. It says Jesus tells us he wasn't asking for much. He wasn't, he wasn't trying to get something more than what he needed. He was, he was looking even for barely what he needed to survive. It says, look down your Bibles. It says he desired to what? To be fed with what fell. With what fell from the rich man's table. Reminds you the, the, um, the woman who came up to Jesus and begged for Jesus' healing. And, and, and she was a Gentile. And so Jesus said, you know, I came to give to the Jews first. And she goes, yeah, but even the dogs eat the scraps from the, ta- the drop from the table. And he's just wondering what the dogs get. 
He's just wanting to be fed with what the dogs get, the scraps that fall from the table. He wants what the dogs can have. And the implication, though, is the rich man doesn't give him even the scraps from his table because Lazarus, he ends up dying. But ironically, Lazarus, his name, it, it's important here as you know that Lazarus is the only one named aside from Abraham. The rich man doesn't have a name, which is unusual in that culture. You name the person with greater honor. The poor man is named Lazarus. Now, this isn't a true story. Jesus is, is creating this picture, this imagery for us for a reason. But the name Lazarus, they would have known in that day, it, it was a very common name that meant whom God helps. What? Really? <laughs> this poor man's named Lazarus, whom God helps, but he's not being helped? You see later that really maybe God expected help to come through the rich man. It says, look the next line there in, the, in your Bibles. It says, moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. And I think we're meant to think of something here. He says, he desired to be fed with the scraps on the table. He wanted what the dogs got. He didn't get it, but the dogs came to him after they were filled with the scraps from the table. They might have been guard dogs. They might have been guards that ro- dogs that roamed the street. Dogs were not seen as clean animals. They were seen as um, associating with dogs, was associating with the lowest. It was, would have been at best a negative connotation here. And so he didn't get the scraps that the dogs got. The dogs got the scraps, and then the dogs came and licked his sores. And that's not a pretty picture of the dogs coming to help him, by the way. The dogs eat the scraps, and they lick up the juices from his sores. This is disgusting. He was so bad off he couldn't fend for himself enough to keep the bloodthirsty dogs from licking him. And this poor man inevitably dies. The poor man dies and he's carried by the angels to Abraham's side. What a shocker for the Pharisees. The Pharisees are listening and they're thinking the poor man died, okay? He says he's carried by the angels. So here's something interesting, the contrast here. The poor man dies, it says nothing of his burial. And and the next verse can tell us that Lazarus died and was buried. He had a proper burial. The poor man dies, doesn't say anything about his burial. He probably wasn't buried. But what happens is this poor oppressed man was actually carried not by humans but by angels, to Abraham's side. What a twist for them. Now, it literally says here that the word is Abraham's bosom or his chest, but in English, it doesn't make a lot of sense to us. We can't really relate to it because in that day, they didn't eat sitting around at tables and chairs. They, they ate sitting around at a banquet. They would spread out sheets on the ground or cloths on the ground. They put the food there. And so you kind of lay down and recline. We see this in Jesus later. Jesus reclined at table. There's no physical table there, but they'd recline. And so this, this is an image here. He says he was at Abraham's bosom. It's a, it's a connotation that you can kind of lose when it's just right at his side. And that's that Abraham's laying on his side and he's at Abraham's chest. Well, there's an implication there that they're laying at a feast. This poor man who didn't eat in life is now feasting with God's most blessed one in, in the Jew's mind at that time. Talk about role reversals. He was, you know, the person who is closest to your side is the person who has greatest privilege. And so, you know, when the th- sons of thunder asked to sit on Jesus' right and left, they were asking for an honor. This man is honored. He's sitting uh, by Abraham's bosom, which they would actually lay kind of at an angle right in front of each other, so his head would have been right here by his chest. It's kind of a little bit awkward for us today. We don't like, we like our personal space. Uh, 
but this was not awkward then. It was a, it was a picture of, of, of relational closeness and intimacy, and that's where he was carried. This one who had nothing to eat in life, he's, he's close to all the blessings of Abraham, feasting at his side. So Lazarus' death revealed that he was truly the one whom God helps. But just as much of a plot twist for the Pharisees, Jesus says, look down your Bible, it says, the rich man also died. The rich man also died and in Hades was buried and was in Hades being in torment. He lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. What? This rich man died. He had a proper burial. His, his body was treated with respect and dignity. But he ends up going to Hades or what we, we call hell. And he's in torment. And he lifts up his eyes and he sees Abraham and far off and Lazarus at his side. So what we see here is that what we do reveals whether or not we're really God's children. What we do in this life reveals. It doesn't cause, but it reveals. What we do in this life reveals whether or not we're really God's children. That's what we're going to see in these verses in verses 23 to 28. We're going to see that how the rich man and Lazarus lived in this life, how the rich man lived in the life, it revealed whether or not he was really God's child. Apparently in the midst of this torment, this formerly rich man looks up and he sees across the great divide that separated Hades from paradise. And by the way, this, doesn't, this isn't a theological treaty on, on what, where is physically hell and can people in hell see people in paradise? No, Jesus is setting up a story to show you, hey, if you could see from hell to heaven and they could talk between the two, here is kind of what would happen, here's what could happen. So this is not, he's not saying this is, this is where we're all gonna go and this is what it's gonna look like. That's not the point of parables. They're meant to draw a picture and show us something and have an effect. So don't get hung up there. But this rich man, he, he looks across this, this divide separating paradise where Abraham, the father of the faith, was and Hades or hell where there is clearly fire and torment and anguish. Now both of those principles are biblical that there is for those who are loved by God, who are his children truly, go to be with him in his presence and those who reveal by their lives here that they are not truly God's children go to a place of torment. That's true. Hell is a true place. But this rich man, he, he looks up and he, does, he, he recognizes something that's telling. So he looked up his eyes and he saw Abraham. That's an indictment right there. He saw, he knew who Abraham was. He knew enough about the faith and understood the Old Testament enough to understand and know who Abraham is. And then here's another indictment in that. And it says he looked up and he saw Abraham far off and then he saw Lazarus at his side. He recognized the guy at his gate and he knew him by name. He wasn't unaware. He wasn't oblivious to the poor. And so even in that, it's an indictment against him. He knew God, who God's, who, 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 what, what God's will was through Abraham. And he knew who this suffering man was at his gate. Enough that he recognized him and knew him by name. And he says, he, he looks. And he thinks, and there's something else here that's, that's shocking. But he thinks, maybe I can get a little reprieve. He's still being selfish. 
and, and, he, and he calls out to them. And, and I want you to notice something here. He doesn't call out to Lazarus. He has the audacity to think he can appeal to Abraham, the, the great patriarch Abraham, and, and he says, you know, Father Abraham. But he also has the audacity to ignore, still ignore Lazarus. He doesn't plead Lazarus. Clearly, you are my superior. I'm not your equal. Oh, Lazarus, you who sat at my gate, I'm so sorry that, that I didn't feed you. I didn't clothe you. I didn't help you. Lazarus, I'm sorry. Would you please come? He doesn't even appeal to Lazarus. He appeals to Abraham still as if Lazarus is his inferior, as he is a slave who should be sent to serve him, even in hell. And he says, Father Abraham, look in your Bibles. He says, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue from in anguish in this flame. He's in such agony and anguish in the flames of hell that he longs for just a drop of water that might fall from the finger of Lazarus. What irony from the story. He wants comfort for his tongue, what he tasted all of his feasts with, from the man he never fed to comfort him from his own hand with just a drop of water. What would, what would fall, the scraps that would fall from Lazarus's finger? We see some irony in the story here. Jesus is a master storyteller, isn't he? This poor helpless beggar Lazarus, he's so desolate, suffering miserably. He desired the scraps and rich man tables. They weren't enough to keep him alive. They weren't enough to... to he, he would have been satisfied with this kind of implication there, but he ends up dying. Now this rich man who lived merrily and lavishly, he is in anguish and longs for just a drop of water to, not enough to end the flames, but enough to, to ease his pain for the moment. Lazarus now is revealed as one truly blessed by God, and this rich man who has the audacity to call Abraham father, he receives no help after he dies and reveals that he truly is not Abraham's child. Abraham's child by birth, maybe, by descendant. He calls Abraham father, and Abraham calls him child in the sense of, you're my child in the flesh, my descendant, but truly you're not my child because he, he says something that's pretty hard. He's a child of Abraham by birth, but it doesn't result in salvation. So listen, look at what Abraham says to him. Look down your Bibles. Abraham says, child, remember, what's he doing? He's kind of giving him some legal language. He's pointing him back to the facts of how he lived and how he lived was revealing where he deserves to go, really. He says, remember that in your lifetime, you received your good things and Lazarus and like men are bad things, but now he's comforted here and you are in anguish and he's inferring something here. He's effectively saying, you received your reward, don't you remember? But remember you didn't do anything with it. And you've reaped the just payment for how you lived your life. Lazarus here, he's, re he's receiving the just rewards for his faith. Now it doesn't directly refer to that, but there's a contrast here that Jesus is inferring. But you, you didn't try to comfort Lazarus and now you're not experiencing any comfort as a result because, not because you earned it, but because it revealed the state of your heart. And Abraham's not gonna attempt to help him. He has no pity on him. 
rightly so. You think, wow, really? Yeah. Um, because he knows that, that all those who rebel against God actually deserve what they get. As all of us who have been saved, by our, our very nature, deserve God's wrath. It's only his mercy that, that we're forgiven, that we don't receive the same torture. That should, that should make us grateful and want us, make us want to respond to, to those in need. Abraham doesn't attempt to help him. He says, look in your Bible, he says, and besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, none may cross from here to, to there to us. He says, even if it was possible, which, you know, I'm not going to do it anyway, but it, if I was, I can't. But look at what the rich man does in response to this. He continues to beg for help. He continues to be self-seeking, self-centered, self-focused. He not once is, even in hell, he's not looking to repent. Shows you that even those who go to hell, they, they don't desire to repent because they, don't, they continue to not repent. He can't alleviate his own physical suffering. He says, well, then if you won't help me and you can't bridge this gap, then maybe you'll go and alleviate my mental anguish knowing that my brothers and my father's house, they're suffering. So look what he says. So the rich man, he, he says, then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house. He still wants him to, Lazarus to go and do his bidding. He's still not getting it. He says, go, go send to my father's house for I have five brothers that he may warn them lest they also come to this place of torment. And you're thinking, well, well maybe, maybe he's being other focused there. Well, well no, he, he's, he's tormented by the fact that, that his own, he's still looking out for his own to not suffer. What a desperate, terrifying picture of anguish and torment and torture physically, mentally, emotionally this formerly rich man is in. You see, what we do reveals whether or not we're God's children. And Abraham, he, he, Abraham, it doesn't oblige the man's request. He's not being mean, though. He knows in, in his statement he's saying that Lazarus is receiving his reward because he's a child. You are receiving your just punishment because you have rebelled against God and against being my child of the faith. And the last point that Abraham tells him, we, we know that, and we see that in verses 29 to 31. And really the last point that we're going to look at here is that what we do with God's word make the, makes the ultimate difference. That's how we know that, Lazar, that the rich man was receiving his just punishment, because how he handled God's word revealed and made the ultimate difference. Look down your Bible, it says, But Abraham said, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. What's he saying? He says, they've already got what they need. They have God's word. They have enough. You had God's word. You had enough. You should have heard God's word and responded. You did not. They too should hear God's word and respond. They have the self-revelation of God, the creator, about who he is and who he made us to be and, and who he calls us to be in coming to him and that he calls us to come to him in faith and belief and that he expects that faith and belief to result in repentance and change and living differently and that in, in those who have God's word, he expects if they've truly repented, they're gonna obey God's word and respond to God's word. And he says, if they're not responding to God's word now in repentance and faith, they're just pretending and they're demonstrating that by not obeying, then nothing is gonna change their minds. You had that, you didn't change. 
You didn't repent. You didn't live out the word of God that you already had. And you have to, in your mind, you're thinking, well, hang on. Wasn't this the Old Testament? How can they hold him accountable for the Old Testament? How, how could this guy have known? Well, let's think for a second. Maybe the Ten Commandments have something to do with loving your neighbor. The first few commandments have to do with loving God. The last six commandments are all about loving your neighbor. And then in Leviticus 19, um, God actually spells it out of what loving your neighbor looks like. It looks like giving to the oppressed, giving to the poor. So this man should have known God's word and he should have seen that repentance looks like responding to God in faith and then turning from a self-centered lifestyle and then helping the poor and oppressed and loving your neighbor. How do I know that? Well, looking at Amos, even the prophets say that, right? Look, at, look up on the screen, Amos 5. Amos 5, 21. This is God talking here. And he's talking about the feasts he commanded and the assemblies that he commanded. God says, I hate. I despise your feasts. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, by the way, that he commanded, I won't accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals that God created, that he instituted, he says, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs to the melody of your harps. I won't listen. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. What's God saying? God's saying, I don't want your empty songs. I don't want all your sacrifices. I don't want you doing the right thing externally. I don't want you pretending. I don't want your worship music. I don't want your assemblies. They don't mean anything if they're not coming from a heart that demonstrates love for me through showing justice and mercy. That's what he's saying. Your perfunctory lifestyle that looks like you love me, I won't accept. I see through it because you don't show justice and mercy. It reveals who you are. So I'm not going to accept your, your sacrifices. Micah 6.8 is even clearer. He says, Micah 6.8, look, look on the overhead series. He says, who has showed you, O man, what is good? And what does the Lord require of you? Require of you. To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. This rich man has no ground to stand. Neither do his brothers, neither actually do any of us. Who, you know, the, the Pharisees, it says they justified themselves. Isn't that what we can do t- sometimes too? You know, how do we justify ourselves when, when we fail to show mercy or when we don't act justly, when we don't walk humbly in relation to our fellow man and so we don't walk humbly in relation to God? When we ignore when we don't have compassion, when we don't have mercy. I'm guilty of all those things. Do I respond like the Pharisee? Do you respond like a Pharisee? Do you justify yourselves and say, well, you know, I really love God? Or do we respond humbly and say, God, help me, help me live in a manner that's worthy of the calling with which I've been called. Help me to walk in a way that I worship you with all of my life and I don't say, God, thank you for saving me, but now I'm gonna live for myself. This parable, it, it hurts. 
But then this man, he argues with, Abraham says, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. What does this man do? He digs himself deeper. Look down in your Bible, it says, he said, no, Father Abraham. Holy cow. <laughs> so Abraham said, they, no, they don't need that. They need God's word. They have that. That's enough. And he says, no, no, that's not enough. How many times do we do that in our own hearts? God, your word's not enough for us to actually respond and live that way. What we need is something supernatural. What we need is to see some spectacular healing or something to really show us that you're alive and you're, you're moving and that you want us to respond to you. And he says, no, Father Abraham, but if somebody goes to them from the dead, they'll repent. They need a miracle. He's saying, basically, God's word's not enough. The covenant that God made with Moses, the revelation, the truth that God gave their prophets, that's not enough. What they really need is somebody to come back from the dead to scare them into repenting. And, and later on, ironically, we see that um, I think Jesus in his divinity knew that later he would raise a real man named Lazarus from the dead. And what was the response of the Pharisees to that? Did the Pharisees really respond when the real Lazarus was raised from the dead? How did they respond when Lazarus was raised from the dead? They wanted to kill him. It was verifiable proof. This guy had been dead for four days, it says. And so much so that in the hot Middle Eastern climate that they were in, humidity and all that kind of stuff. And by the way, if you ever leave food out for four days outside in the Carolina humidity when it's 90 degrees, you know that it kind of doesn't go so well. Leave a piece of meat out there. You're going to have maggots all over it. And, And Lazarus, the real Lazarus, Jesus waited on purpose until it says he stank. He smelled so bad. They opened up the, the, the tomb and everybody was like, oh my God, Jesus, really, seriously? There was proof, verifiable proof that he raised Lazarus from the dead, but that wasn't enough for them because they failed to respond to God's word. They had enough in God's word. They didn't respond to God's word. And, and later we see that proved out. And actually later we see an even greater resurrection here that Jesus is kind of looking towards some foreshadowing If somebody goes to them, comes back from the dead, they still won't repent. How did the Pharisees respond when Jesus himself was raised from the dead and they they saw him? There's verifiable proof. You have hundreds of eyewitnesses. Um, When it comes to forensic testimony, this would have satisfied, Jesus' resurrection would have satisfied um, any legal requirements for testimony, both in that day and this day. Oh, he appeared to 500 at once. They weren't all experiencing some mass hysterical sight. He appeared to people over many weeks. And yet, how did the Pharisees respond? They paid people off to say, keep it quiet. Say that his disciples came and robbed the grave. Or say that he wasn't really dead. Or... This man, he would have seen Lazarus day by day and his plight and suffering, did nothing to alleviate it. He didn't give him the table scraps. He proved he didn't love God by his actions. He proved that he did not count God's word seriously. He did not respond to God's word. He didn't love God's word. He wasn't truly a child of Abraham. That's what Abraham's saying to him. They have God's word. You had God's word. We're meant to respond to God's word. Not to earn, but to respond to God's word that tells us how to be his children and then to live like we're his children in response, revealing that we want to change and turn from living for ourselves and we want to turn to living for him. And look at the last thing that Abraham says to him. He says, if, this is how the parable ends, if they don't hear Moses and the prophets, 
they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if somebody should rise from the dead. Now when it talks about hearing in that day, it's not just saying, like, oh, I heard, I heard it, I heard Moses and the prophets. This is a, a hearing with uh, an intention to respond. Hearing that's seen by responding. Hearing that results in, in, in repentance, in belief, in action. Moses and the prophets, to hear them would be to understand God's word, to be convinced of the truth so much that you would go to God in faith and repent and then demonstrate the life of obedience in your life. Pharisees would have gotten the meaning and they would not have been happy. That's why they hated Jesus so much. Jesus punched him in the face. You know, that's the effect of the parables. You think, oh, this is a nice story. And then it punches you between the eyes. And that's what this is really for us today too, right? It's, it's got some profound implications for us personally, or it should, or it should at least make us think, at least make us review our own lives and how we're living. You know, it reveals that, that humanity needs to repent from living for themselves if we hope to avoid torment eternally. It reveals that we need to be truly a child of God, that it's not about externals, that it's how we respond to God's word makes all the difference. It also reveals the primary way we can determine whether we're bearing fruit in keeping with repentance is, is how we respond to the needs of those who God's placed in our path. You can't miss that. If you're not generous, it's an indicator of where your heart is. If you're lacking in generosity, you better sit up and take notice makes me sit up and take notice. Man, I didn't want to preach this message today. It's a hard message to preach. It's not fun. <laughs> but it's good. Because you see, Jesus says to, to call to calls all of us, he says, he says, come after me, take up your what? Take up your cross and follow me. There's a daily dying to ourselves that is expected if we truly are going to repent and change. It's a daily repentance and change, a daily pursuit of saying, God, let me not live for myself. Let me live for you. Let me, let me honor and worship you, not to earn your favor, but because you died on the cross, now I want to live in a response. And if you're not living in response, if you're not generous, if you're not giving, You ought to question whether you really have taken up your cross and are following him. Are we living for ourselves? Are we living selfish lives like the rich man in the story? Or, or are we at least thinking about how to live lives that are generous and caring towards others? Are we orienting our lives so that they reflect what we say we believe? Do we believe that we were recipients of God's grace and mercy that's undeserved? Do we believe that we were like the leper from last week or that we're like Lazarus, that we were helpless. Do we believe that, that we didn't earn any favor that God has given to us? Do we really believe that? If so, it'll be seen in how we live. It also reveals that how we live here in this life and how, whether we respond to God's word, whether we place our faith in him and truly repent where our hearts are, it makes a difference eternally and there's no coming back from it. There's no coming back from going to hell. Um, what we do in the sense of have we placed our faith in Jesus Christ, are we truly a child of God? Are we responding to God's word? Are we found in him in this life? Are we demonstrating repentance and uh, fruit in keeping with the repentance we say we have? All of those things... Reveal what our eternal state really is. 
And there's no coming back from that. And there's meant to be a warning here. It's also meant to show that God takes stewardship very seriously. It's at least one important means by which we demonstrate whether or not we really believe what we say we believe, enough to have our financial actions and our decisions demonstrated. What it's not saying is that we don't find our acceptance or our salvation in good works. Because a lot of those uber-wealthy people of the 1900s were great philanthropists in one sense. They gave away all their money, but they had no heart for God. It's not talking about earning salvation here, but it's talking about how we live and what we do with God's word, how we respond to God's word. It reveals. Stewardship indicates the state of our salvation. It's meant to make us say, hey, are you really, or are you just playing church like the Pharisees? They were the religious leaders, the pastors of that day. They were the theologians. They were the ones who looked good and taught good and acted good, but weren't good. Who are we? Here's the great hope. No matter where you find yourself today, there's great hope that Jesus came to those in need. That Jesus came to all those who were Dead in sins. Dead in transgression and sins. Without God, without hope in this world. The glorious light of his gospel broken. The good news that says we're not saved by self-justification. We're saved by God's grace because he's had mercy on we who were poor, starving, helpless sinners. So by his grace, we want to live for him. We want to respond to him. but it is meant for us to examine whether we're generous or not, whether we're caring for the poor or needy. Don't water the parable down. It's meant just to, for us to say, wait a minute, am I worshiping God by looking for the people at my gate and in my path, the people I see every day who are in need, the people that God puts in my path? Am I, am I being caring for them? Am I, am, I, am I at least giving them scraps? This ethic of mercy and compassion is still applies today. How do I know that? Well, um, in, in 1 John 3.17, the Apostle John, one of the two closest apostles, 1 John 3.17, he says, but if anyone, this is a New Testament ethic, it's not just an Old Testament thing for those who had the law, this is for those who've been saved by God's grace. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, saying if somebody here in your church is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things they needed for the body, <laughs> What good is that? Oops, sorry, I went to James. Sorry, I meant to I skipped two, two verses together. Sorry, John. I'll read John this time now. First John 3, 17. If anyone has the world's goods and sees his brothers in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? It's a rhetorical question. If you have the world's good and you see your brother in need and you close your heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Well, then James's brother, I mean, Jesus' brother James, who I mangled a verse earlier, so go over to James. James 2, 15 says, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed, lacking food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Ouch. It means that your faith is not really a living faith. You're demonstrating by how we live whether or not our faith is really alive. That's what he's saying. That hurts. (laughs) 
Now, I'm not trying to make people here um, be legalistic and think somehow you can earn favor before God. That's not what it is. It's saying if you have faith, then it will be seen in your works and how you live. I think that's a good word for all of us to say, you know what, wait a minute. Are, are we, are, how are we worshiping God and taking up our cross and following him? And, and it's also meant for those of us who are, are sanctimonious and, and, and justifying ourselves to say, wait a minute, you know what? I'm not truly born again. I'm not truly following Jesus. This is just an external thing that I'm pretending and playing church. I don't want to do that anymore because I want to follow God. I want to be his child. And it's not, you don't do these things to be his child, but you, you have faith in him and say, God, I'm, I have faith that if I give everything up, for you that is more than worth it, that, that you will save me, you will rescue me, and I will be with you eternally. And I want to live all my life pointing to that. I encourage you to consider the consequences of living for yourself and not repenting. They're serious, they're eternal. But if you are God's children, if you are a child of God, I want you to respond in, in faith. Thank God that he doesn't leave us in our sin. That he has such mercy on us. That he brings conviction and says, I don't want you to be stuck here selfish and letting those things keep you from knowing me, keep you from loving me, keep you from experiencing true joy. I don't want you to be encumbered by, by all these weeds in life. I want you to be free to really love me and enjoy me, but not being consumed with riches, not being consumed with yourself and selfishness. Well, if you want to respond this morning, there are many ways for us to do that. Ask yourselves, how do I give? How giving am I? How generous am I? Who are those around me who are poor? What do I do with them? Have I, do I have a real faith in God? If so, then, then Lord, forgive me for those areas. Thank you that your blood that we talked about earlier, there's no condemnation. His blood has already forgiven you of all your sins if you place your faith in Jesus Christ. It's not what Jesus' parables were about, but thank you that, God, you've forgiven me for being a selfish jerk. And actually, it can lead to more worship. God, thanks for revealing this. Lord, thank you for revealing these areas. I need to be set free from this. And Lord, thank you that you've forgiven me for this. We can respond in faith there. If you don't know Jesus, you can respond in faith today as well. Either way, I encourage all of us to, to respond to Jesus this morning. So let's stand, and I wanna, I wanna close with singing a song um, There's a song called O Great God that I want to sing in a moment. O Great God of highest heaven, occupy my lowly heart. Own it all and reign supreme. (laughs) Conquer every worldly desire that we have. And, And that's our prayer. So I want to encourage you to pray that as we're singing this song together. Make it our prayer of response to him. And then receive the wonderful thing that God promises to all those who confess their sins. It says that he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to make us clean. Let's let's sing that and think that as we sing.